when I met R.C. Sproul and shook his hand, uh, I was speechless. I didn't know what to say to him. I felt like a dummy. And he was incredibly nice. And I told him that the holiness of God just meant the world to me. And he told me thanks for reading. But um, so the, what was the thing about the holiness of God for me? It was this It was this weighty vision of God that I had not been presented with before. A lot of the preaching that I had listened to, um, that I, a lot of it was on the radio. Like I would listen to the radio and I would listen to everything that came on the Christian talk radio station. Just everything. And mostly it was good. Like mostly it was not bad. But the one thing that you did see was the preachers that everybody liked the most tended to keep it light. They tended to keep it friendly. They tended to keep it pretty digestible to, to, to a typical person who maybe is not looking to have their world blown open, but they just want to get through the week and, and have something that, that, that could leave them feeling good. So that was a lot of the uh, preaching that I was hearing. But then when Sproul would come on, uh, he would talk about God as this one that we should almost be have some trepidation to approach. He almost spoke of God in this way that I resonated, I, I resonated with, that I really saw that God really is like this. Why do we treat him so lightly? So I think this was my first Sproul book. I, I, I bought The Holiness of God and I, I read it and I just digested everything in it. And I was looking through and I was thinking, well, I actually didn't highlight near as much as I used to, but I was going to read this uh, one passage that just sort of, I don't know, it sort of encompasses what I apparently really liked when I first read this. This is years ago that I marked this, but this is what, this is what Sproul says. He's talking about when, when Moses sees God, but there's a terror to it. You know, there's this, there's this fear about seeing the creator. And, and, and Sproul writes this, this experience of terror was directed at the face of a man. So they're seeing Moses. And it says, this experience of terror was directed at the face of, the ma- of a man who had come so close to God that he was reflecting God's glory. This was a reflection of the glory from the back of God, not the full glory of his face. If people are terrified by the sight of the reflected glory of the back parts of God, how can anyone stand to gaze directly into his holy face? And there's just the book is just filled with more of these stories, more of these reminders of the weightiness of what it is to come into God's presence. And it's easy for us to get lackadaisical about worship. It's easy for us to sort of look at our relationship with God as something that's just a given, something that, of course, this is what, how God deals with us. Of course, we get to worship. And reading the holiness of God every now and then is a great way of being reminded uh, that the God we serve is a consuming fire, that he is one that it is gracious that we get to even think about him. Amen. Uh, it is a gracious thing that we get to pray or say his name. Um, Good reminder. So anyway, I'm going to pass this around, even though half of you have already read it. Uh, and we'll see if I can. Oh. <clears throat> okay, so that's my book recommendation for today, The Holiness of God. A very controversial choice, I'm sure. Not at all. Um, but speaking of controversial, uh, speaking of controversial, here's one that I got in trouble when I was a kid for reading. <laughs> Very edgy stuff. I will never forget. I will never forget. I tell the story so much because it just sticks with me. Um, when I was a kid, here's what would happen. I wasn't a believer. I was a young skeptic, 13 years old, didn't believe in God. 
if, if you haven't already heard my story about the Pentecostals making me speak in tongues, then ask me sometime and I'll tell it to you. Um, <laughs> but after the Pentecostals made me speak in tongues, I did not believe anymore. I said, I, if, if, God is, if God is like this where everyone has to coach themselves into believing that he's real, then he must not be real. Because if he's real, they should not have to work this hard at believing in him. And so I would sit in church, and instead of following along with the sermon, I would read the parts of the Bible that were more interesting to me. Well, at the age of 13, you can guess what I might have been interested in. So I turned to the Song of Songs, and I started reading the Song of Songs. And my father looked over. He saw that I had my Bible open, which must have cheered his heart. But then he saw that I was reading the Song of Songs, and I will never forget. He, he reached over, and he turned the page and he said, that book is not for kids. <laughs> Which I was like, but it's the Bible. Uh, my father did not want me sitting there reading this filth. So this is sort of my, this is my, uh, this is, this is my way of getting young people really excited to, about the book of Song of Songs. Um, it's got all kinds of names. Song of Songs is called Song of Solomon. Sometimes it's called the Canticle. Uh, I'm not sure which, what your Bibles say, if any of yours have a different title besides those two. But um, the Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, that's the book we're going to talk about. <clears throat> now we're actually going to talk about this, and if I think we're going to have time. We're going to talk about Ecclesiastes as well. Um, this book is a poem. It comes from the time of Solomon. It has been challenging to the church primarily because the most straightforward reading of this book is that it is a love story between two people. And that, what's that? Oh, I'm recording. Oh, I don't, I don't need you anymore. I'm graduating. I got Benjamin up here. He already had me before I even started. They got to hear, whoever's listening online gets to hear the book recommendation today. So, um, so this is a tricky book because it's a love story between two people and the church is left going, why is this in our Bible? Why do we have this at all? When you consider that the Bible is a book about God, the church has asked the question, what do we need Song of Solomon for? What is the function? And so because of that, there have been a few ways that people have interpreted this book uh, in the past. So let me just talk about a few different uh, ways that people have tried to read this book. By the way, R.C. Sproul is the reason why I like this. Um, like writing stuff on the board because um, if you ever listen, watch him in person he'll talk about one subject and he'll write the subject he's talking about and so you're visually seeing the thing he's talking about and then he's just filling it in and I always found that really helpful it except is. we don't have a chalkboard and I don't want to get one because they're dirty um, but the first way is, is to read the book as a fictional drama you say hey maybe this is a fictional drama right what does that mean the poem in this view is, is presented in a dialogue form of chorus, refrain, the characters, the bridegroom, which is Solomon, and then there's the bride, which is the Shulamite, and the chorus is the bridesmaid. So you've got these three people speaking and singing back and forth to each other. And so the, the fictional drama says this is a fiction. It's a story with a romantic theme. And even though it's fictional, it would represent the love story of an actual person. So uh, fictional drama means that Solomon uh, never had a relationship like this. He's just dramatizing one of the many, 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 many women that he had. Uh, sorry, did I say many enough times? Many. Um, the second way that, that the book has been read before is 
allegory. Um, I actually don't hate this view. I, it's not my view, but I, I do not hate this view. Uh, a few of the names that would, that would have this view that the book is an allegory. Um, by the way, when I say allegory, what I mean is that it is representative of God's love for his people, of Israel. So when you're hearing the romance between the, the Shulamite and Solomon, you're really seeing the love between God and his people. And um, you have Origen, you have Jerome, you have Calvin uh, had this view. One of the best representatives of the allegorical view of Song of Solomon is Bernard of Clairvaux. Bernard of Clairvaux, you can go on Amazon, I think for like a dollar or two dollars, and you can buy the Kindle version of, of Bernard's sermons on Song of Songs. They are not helpful for understanding what Song of Songs says, <laughs> because he just goes, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. He'll read that, right? Now, what's it literally talking about? It's talking about kissing with kisses and mouths, right? Really obvious. But Bernard will do a sermon where he will talk about how much Jesus loves his church. Now, <clears throat> if you'd say that Jesus loves his church, you, you can't be wrong in saying that. You're going to be right. Um, but is that what the passage is meant to say? Well, that's an open question. Here's one thing that I will say. Bernard is a lovely sermon writer. I seriously recommend reading Bernard of Clairvaux's sermons on Song of Songs. Again, you won't understand Song of Songs any better for reading it, but it, they are great sermons. They're just wonderful, wonderful sermons about a range of different issues that, again, have little connection to the actual text. Um, so, you know, the bridegroom is, is, uh, is, is God, and uh, you have Israel being sort of wooed. Um, Christ maybe is Solomon. Sometimes people will read this passage as Christ pursuing his people. And so and the idea here is that God has this love affair with his people Israel or, or Christ loves his church. And for years, this was sort of the accepted re uh, interpretation of the passage because a literal interpretation of it would be considered unclean. Especially think about this in a, in a time where monks... Men who have devoted themselves to not ever having sex are going to read this poem about exactly the opposite of what they have vowed themselves to do with their lives. How are they supposed to, how is Origen or Jerome or Bernard supposed to actually read this passage literally and appreciate what it has to say? I think Song of Solomon has something to say to a married person about what romantic love looks like. I think these guys, these guys were in a position where they had dedicated themselves to a life of singleness, to where they, they could not see good in reading, the, in reading it that way. And so they were sort of forced by their circumstances to allegorize it. Um, if I was living a celibate life, I would try to read Song of Solomon that way too, just FYI. Um, and if only my dad had had an allegorical interpretation, he would have said, read away, son. Enjoy Song of Solomon. Uh, <clears throat> I don't hate, again, I don't hate this view. Um, you actually see allegory gets used in the New Testament. Uh, narratives in the Old Testament get read allegorically by Paul in Ephesians 5, for example. Um, Paul uses marriage as an allegory of God's own commitment to his people. So it's not... It's not like the wildest, craziest thing 
to read Song of Solomon that way. Um, however, I also don't think that's how it was written. I think it was written as an actual love story. So this is going to be the third view. I'm just going to call it the historical view. There's a diff- there are a few different um, names for this. The, it's the historical view, the literal view, the natural view. Uh, an example of this would be John Currid. Um, one of my professors at school, Miles Van Pelt, said that this is uh, just a book about marriage. This is a book about pursuing one another and about the healthiness and good of romantic love between a husband and wife. Um, <clears throat> the man is likely Solomon and the Shulamite is a young princess from Egypt. Um, seen this way, then the poem is the ideal. It's the representation of true love, what it was meant to be in a romantic context, love in its proper perspective. Um, God designed men and women to live in a relationship, which is respectable and loving and affirming. And that's what you see in this book. There's a lot of pursuit of one another happening. Uh, marriage in this, in this story is not something that's easy. It takes a lot of work. Sometimes there's heartache. Sometimes there's pursuit. Sometimes there's loss involved. Um, and it sort of makes romance seem like something that uh, it's more work than you would have ever guessed. Um, but you get, sounds right to me. Um, you see the physical and the spiritual side of love portrayed in this book. You see the physical side, right? There is admiration in the book, the literal admiration of the beauty of the body, of uh, the natural desire and expression of sexuality in Song of Songs. Um, there is physical pleasure in the relationship that is portrayed in Song of Songs. Um, not just the physical, though. There is also the spiritual side of the relationship you see. They are friends. They talk about each other as friends. There's friendship. There's companionship. There's sharing in this relationship. Um, There's hope for the future together. Um, You see all of these things come out in this book. Um, There's a mutuality of shared love as well, right? Um, In the book, in Song of Songs, one of the things you see, not to get too, too graphic, but the relationship, the physical act is not just about the woman giving the man what he wants. So it's a two sided. Uh, physical relationship that the book of Song of Songs portrays. That's, that's what somebody with a historical view, I think the natural view of the passage is going to say about Song of Songs. Um, this view sees this as a historical example of truth, true virtue, exalting monogamy. Uh, again, you don't see any signs of Solomon's other wives here. So what does that mean? Does that mean that this is early life of Solomon is this later life of Solomon where he's rejected all other women. It's hard to say the, the book just doesn't give you this, this uh, um, really much reflection at all when it comes to any other women. In fact, in the book, there is no other woman in, in the, in Solomon's eyes than the Shulamite. This is the only woman that he sees. He's a one woman man in song of Solomon. Um, in, in my view, there is more, to this than just a poem about love between a man and a woman. I think the allegorical and the historical have good features. Um, but this is a poem which really does show the sort of bride-like love that's supposed to exist between God and his people. So if you think of it this way, here's how I would put it. The fact that Ephesians says marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church means that you can come to a book that's meant to have a literal view of marriage and you can draw appreciation for, of Christ from it, right? If marriage is meant to picture Jesus' love for his church, then marriages in the Bible are, and we're being invited to reflect upon those, those marriages in a helpful way. So I think it's 
I think it's historical and it could be allegorical. I, I'm kind of trying to have it both ways. I want to have my cake and eat it too. Um, what's the message of Song of Songs in light of that sort of balanced, I think balanced view? Um, Miles Van Pelt says that Song of Songs uh, 8, 6 to 7 is the heart of the book. If you want to know where the heart of the book actually is, it's in verses 6 to 7. It says this, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And he says that's the center of this book. That's the core of this book. And here's what he says. He says, the song teaches that the biblical covenant of marriage is intended to promote love that is both rock solid, that's verse 6a, and white hot, verse 6b. And this type of love endures hardship, resists temptation, and brings wholeness. And every one of those features of that comes from these verses right here. Uh, uh, Chapter 8, verses 6 through 10. So... There's a lot we could say about Song of Solomon. I'm going to go ahead and give you some conclusions about it because my intention is to cover this and Ecclesiastes today. But let me say a few things. One is this. This is a countercultural book. The reason it's countercultural is because in our day, sex is seen as something that happens inside and outside of marriage. Right? It's something that can happen anywhere. In fact, here is what our day has done. It has reduced sex to a physical transaction with no spiritual component stripped of any kind of meaning whatsoever. It can happen and it can mean nothing. It can happen and have no impact on our soul or not mean anything to us. Um, it's just a physical act, like using the restroom, right? And, and yet the book of Song of Songs says, well, actually, it's, um, it's totally different, right? Instead, they've said, you're a whole person, right? Our, our culture see, sees um, things like pornography or sees um, sex as something that's just the participants are just bodies instead of whole people, right? Everybody's just sort of separated from their physical uh, existence, you know? And, and basically we just see ourselves that way and all the things that I do with my body don't really matter because my body is sort of a construct too, just like my mind and just like everything I believe about myself and society. It's all just made up. Everything's just made up. And Song of Songs says, you are a person, with a body and a soul. You are one person who has got, got this nature that needs to be reckoned with. You're a human being. You're a whole person. And so um, in our culture today, you know, the question is, why do you make such a big deal about sex? And Song of Songs instead says, no, no, no. The people who do this are whole people, right? You are not just a disembodied soul floating around. Instead, you're a whole person. Everything about you sort of matters. Everything in your soul matters. Everything you do with your body matters. Um, and so this book is a positive. Not only is it countercultural in the sense that it's saying we're whole people, but it's also a positive in saying that, look, this is a Christian view of man and woman. We are whole people, body and soul. And it's also this. It's an endorsement and a positive endorsement by God of marital love in all of its physical and emotional beauty. Read Song of Songs together as a couple if you're married. I don't recommend reading Song of Songs for someone you're on a date with, all right? But get married, you read Song of Songs together. 
Um, so I grew up in this very conservative home. I remember after getting married, because of some of the things I had imbibed as a teenager, I had, had imbibed just this over and over and over again, this message that sex is bad. Sex is bad. Sex is going to ruin you. It's going to destroy you. It's going to hurt your soul. It's going to rip your soul out. You know, you're going to be miserable if you ever have sex. And then you get married and they're like, so forget all that stuff we said. We were just doing that so you wouldn't do it before you got married. But it's actually really great. And you're like, wait a minute. I just spent 20 years (laughs) hearing that this is the dirtiest and grossest thing that ever happened in human history. And now you're telling me it's fine. Excuse me while I spend the next seven years getting over that mindset you spent drilling into my head as a teenager. And this book is a resounding endorsement of marital love. And um, I just think that we probably need to figure out a better way of communicating the idea of a healthy view of sex to young people. Um, So what does that mean? Well, I think from a parenting perspective, it probably means talking frankly with our kids about sex and not being embarrassed when we talk about it. They can tell when you're embarrassed. I tried broaching the subject with uh, my, one of my children who's not in the room. (laughs) And I go, I go, uh, this is how, this is my, my, my way of trying. So Erin's great. She, she did it. She, she talked about the issue already with the oldest. Then, uh, and she goes, you know, Adam, he's old enough now. You need to talk about it. So one day I'm sitting with him, we're playing video games and I go, son, we need to talk about something important. Let's pause this game for a minute. And I go, what do you know about sex? He goes, dad. You're embarrassing yourself. <laughs> I was like, I haven't even said anything yet. He said, you're already embarrassing yourself. <laughs> Try again. So, <laughs> so we as parents have to deal with our own bashfulness so that we can talk to our kids in a way that doesn't tell them we're terrified of this thing too. Um, so you got these two opposite... You've got these two opposite mistakes you can make, right? Sex is no big deal. And then sex is so gigantically terrifying that you shouldn't even think about it. And both of these things are, I think, damaging. I think they're problems. So we need to reckon with how this balance that God gives to us. He gives us the balance in the book like Song of Solomon, right? He shows us that he's not bashful about it. He shows us that he's not embarrassed of two people being married and naked together. He, he does that with this book. So, so we've just got to learn to communicate better, I think. And talk better about these things. Um, But Song of Solomon says, look, give yourself to one. And give yourself to them completely, heart and soul, and to no one else. That's really what Song of Solomon's doing. And it's saying, that's great. It's a good thing. Um, So that's my take on Song of Solomon. Uh, And you got the sex talk all at once. It's great. Uh, we got 15 minutes. I'm going to do what I can with Ecclesiastes, but we'll see. We'll see whether we can get very far. Um, what's that? No, <laughs> well, there is some sex in this book, and he he talks about how unhappy it made him. So we're just going to kind of turn the page and and see that side of things too. So this book is uh, the book. The title of the book means "One Who Assembles, One Who Gathers." Um, the in the Hebrew, the name of the book is Kohelet. It's a great name, Kohelet. It's the assembler. He's the guy who brings it all together. Um, Probably another term for the king could be Solomon. 
uh, whoever it was, really, honestly, Solomon's almost the only person that fits the bill. You get enough of this autobiographical side to the book of Ecclesiastes. There's almost no one else that really it makes sense for the author to be. Um, there are some books in the Bible that are love at first sight. For me, Ecclesiastes was love at first sight. I'm like, I'm like one of those kids that just like, I don't know. I like to think on the darker things of life. I, I, I like to sit and listen to the cure, you know, on a step at, in front of the school. And uh, I didn't wear dark clothes, but, you know, uh, but I might as well have. Like I just read Ecclesiastes and I was like, I love this book. This is just, this is just a great book. Um, I was a young atheist, right? I was like 13 years old and I was just reading through the Bible and there was a lot of stuff that I really liked in the Bible and I liked Ecclesiastes um, because for me, uh, I would read selectively in the book of Ecclesiastes and go, yeah, life is meaningless. Yeah, everything's grim and dark. And then I always missed the part about it being under the sun and I didn't understand what under the sun means. We'll talk about under the sun and why I completely misunderstood. It was actually, I was getting it right. I was actually hearing it the way it was meant to be. Without God in the universe, yes, you, Adam, that's you. Uh, this is exactly the world you live in. So it nailed me as, in, as a young atheist. Um, but when I was a Christian, I looked at this book with very new eyes. And I saw it very differently. And I realized this book is really saying something opposite of what I thought as a young atheist. So we'll talk about how we should view the book. What's the purpose of Ecclesiastes? Why is this book with the weird name in our, in our Bible? Well, this is a didactic book. That means it's a book about teaching. It's trying to teach us something. It's trying to show us something that maybe we don't see uh, otherwise. The writer wants to learn from his life. And here's, anytime you talk to a writer, one of the questions that a publisher sometimes at least will ask the writer is, why are you the right person to write this book? Why are you the person who should be writing this? And the author of Ecclesiastes, well, he's got some experiences that you and I don't share. He's been through some things. He's tried some things. He's lived stuff that you and I don't have the means to live. Uh, he's seen things that we don't have the means to see. Uh, you and I don't know what it's like to build whole kingdoms. You, got, you and I don't know what it's like to have this kind of wealth that he enjoys. All we know is how to pine for it and wish we could have it. And here's a guy who's actually had it, and he's going to teach us things that he learned by having all of his dreams come true. So he, this, is, this guy is uniquely placed to appreciate and teach what he has to say here. So... Um, by the way, part of life is learning from other people's mistakes. This is a guy who makes a lot of mistakes and tells them to us. So he's very straightforward. And that's what Kohelet wants for us. That's what he wants. The assembler wants us to learn these things. So one of the key words of this book is the word vanity. He uses it a lot. Um, he uses the phrase vanity of vanities 37 times in the book. When he says that over and over again, he's saying this is what life is under the sun. If you live a life without God in it, then you're living a life under the sun and everything that you enjoy is vanity of vanities. It's fleeting. It's going to fly away. Um, Pastor Adam, yeah. Doesn't that word, uh, I think it translates hevel, which means like smoke. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, all is smoke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then also, isn't the, the structure of the book of Ecclesiastes, the author writing about somebody as a skeptic in the book. So if they're two separate voices, I feel like in the final chapter, it comes together um, back as the author talking about how the skeptic was, had an improper view of the scriptures. Or well, 
Yeah, he, um, Eric is just asking, is it, is it possible or isn't it right that the structure of the book is actually sort of the teacher coming in and taking this other guy's perspective, um, showing that basically his worldview is damaged? Is that a fair way of saying it? And then at the end, he sort of says, here's a lesson to be learned from this guy's life. Well, I, I never noticed that it looked like it was written about somebody else. It could be. Somebody actually could open it up and show it to me, and I would be totally open to it. But um, I've only ever noticed one, one writer talking about himself, basically, in first person. Now, sometimes he'll say, I see other people doing this, and he will talk that way. So he'll talk third person sometimes, but it seems like he always comes back to first person again. And then by the end, he brings his own, his own interpretation to this stuff, but... Somebody could show me that, and I'd, that would enrich, I think, the, my reading of the book. So, um, But the idea is that the, the author of Ecclesiastes is out to prove that he's making this argument, right? He's got this argument. He's got this thesis. He's got this thing that he wants to convince all of us of, and that is that everything under the sun is transitory and won't last. So if it qualifies for this category, under the sun... Anything that's under the sun, it's going to go away. It's real, but it's fleeting, right? It's smoke, like Eric was saying. Um, it's not something that can last. It's not something that's established. It's not something that's going to endure. So he's got this long list of things that he's trying or that he has tried in his life that qualifies as being under the sun. Um, and so he gives things like... I actually don't know if I'm going to write all these. It's too much writing. Um, he mentions self-indulgence, right? He says, I, I live for uh, tested uh, what it was like to give myself the sort of things that I just impulsively would want. And as the king of Israel, I could have anything I wanted and I grabbed for it and I grasped at it and I got it. I had mountains of, of things. I had vineyards. I had fruit trees. I had servants. I had people to do stuff for me. I had silver and gold and kings and princes and people all wanted to visit me. Now, this is a guy who's lived a very self-indulgent lifestyle. And he said, maybe that's you. Maybe that's what you want in life. Um, and he says, but here's what I considered. I consider that it was a vanity and striving after wind. So this thing under the sun didn't satisfy. So then what does he say? Well, I'm going to try something else. He says, I'll try wisdom, right? Who's going to take fault with the idea of being wise? And so he, he does all this work to gain knowledge. He wants to gain all this information. Um, he says he realizes, though, that the fool dies just like the wise man. And all of it ends up being the same for these people. And so wisdom ends up being a, a sort of a, a, a self-indulgent pursuit itself. And he says that self-indulgence doesn't satisfy. It's under the sun. So again, we're not talking about godly wisdom. We're not talking about the sort of things the book of Proverbs was aiming at. We're talking about somebody who wants to know stuff, who wants to know science or history or um, government or whatever. And he's filling himself up with information and he says, this is a vanity. This is pointless. He says, what about work? I can set myself to producing all kinds of things. I can oversee all kinds of massive projects. I can produce all sorts of things that everybody's going to remember me afterwards. People will name buildings after me. People are going to call it Solomon's temple in the years later. Surely this will make me feel satisfied and fulfilled. And again, he says, it is a vanity. It is a, it is a chasing after the wind. And he just keeps going through all the sort of things that I think all of us, even today, still instinctively 
want to chase. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he basically says, you can run the gamut of all the stuff that you might possibly want in life. I've actually gotten it. You know, he's the, he's the dog that caught the, the postal truck. You know, this is him. And now he got to the postal truck and he's like, uh, there's just mail in here. You know, <laughs> now I have to sort the mail. This is the way it works. If you catch the postal truck, you have to deliver the mail. And so he found that out. Um, but there's this bleakness to it, right? And this, there's this perspective that just says, look, this, uh, um, there's something about this that uh, I, it, it was different than I thought. I actually thought if I chased what I wanted and if I chased down my dreams that, that I would, there would be something. So there'd be a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow, you know, and he doesn't find it. And so instead, I love, the, I love Ecclesiastes now because here's the deal. The author is a, a major league realist. And I love realism. Uh, I love just that everyday stop being so optimistic. Just see the world the way it really is. We're all going to die. And I love that message of Ecclesiastes because we don't hear it enough and we don't believe it enough. And we certainly don't believe it enough about ourselves. Um, we're all going to die one day. What are we going to leave behind? Is it going to be vanity or is it going to be something that lasts? And so a few lessons. I'm going to just mention four. Well, okay. I got to do, I got to be fast. So four lessons of Ecclesiastes. One is human wisdom is transitory. Um, He says, look, the most brilliant and the most senile, both of them die, right? The most brilliant, Albert Einstein is in the grave right next to, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a famous fool, but uh, nothing comes to mind. (laughs) There aren't a lot of, actually, there are probably a lot of famous fools now I think of it. But, you know, Albert Einstein's in the grave right next to that guy that um, lived a foolish life. You know, the, both the, the wise and the fool both die. And so if your perspective is all on what you can get, what you can have, life under the sun, well, it doesn't matter because as far as life under the sun is concerned, they're both dead. They're both in the grave. Um, by the way, the age we live in has accumulated so much knowledge. I think I mentioned this last week. We are an age that's uh, flush with knowledge, and we are just starving for wisdom. We just don't have it. Um, not only that, all the knowledge we accumulated, we still don't know how to find satisfaction in life. Isn't that an interesting thing? Um, in an age where we have so much information at our fingertips, you still have an incredibly high suicide rate in a nation like ours. Could it be that the things that we chase after and that our parents have provided for us and that and the age that have, have that we now live in, which is more affluent than any other in all of human history, mm-hmm. is it possible that maybe that chasing under the sun has just left people just feeling emptier than ever? Mm-hmm. Maybe that maybe Ecclesiastes speaks to our age more than any other, huh? An age that we almost live like kings now. I would rather be Adam in 2021 than King Solomon back when Solomon's living, right? The, not the 1,900 period. I've got indoor plumbing. I don't have to... <laughs> you know, I, that alone... <laughs> I, ha- I sleep on a Tempur-Pedic bed. Like, I don't know what he slept on, but it could not possibly be as good as a Tempur-Pedic bed. I have air conditioning, right? It doesn't matter. I mean, you would have had to hire 100 people to stand around him with fans all day long. Um, so, yeah, we live kingly lifestyles compared to what came before. You've got McDonald's. I do have McDonald's. I have gained eight pounds in the last two months. I think I do this every year in October, but it doesn't mean that, it, doesn't mean that it's good. 
Um, and I had no help from McDonald's either. Um, also, this goes right along with all of this. Wealth is transitory, right? You die, what do you do? You plan for who's going to inherit your money. Um, maybe, if you plan well. Um, if you have any. Um, Here's what happens, though. Greed robs us of joy, produces temporary results. The more we get, the more we want. None of it lasts. This is one of the things that Ecclesiastes is driving home to us. He's like, I got and then I wanted more, and I was never satisfied with all that I had. And so one of the most profound passages is Ecclesiastes 1.7. All the streams flow to the sea, and the sea is never full. (laughs) To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Like, just... Profound. I just think it's profound. I think it's great. Um, also, third thing is this power and influence are transitory. They are vanity. They are fleeting. They're like smoke, right? There's this vicious cycle that no matter how hard we work, we're still not remembered. Eventually, everybody who knew us dies. And everybody, you know, I sometimes think about my great, great, great grandparents, the McKinney's. And I think about the fact that I don't know them. They're just names to me. And maybe my great-great-grandparents knew them, but by the time you get to Adam, I don't know these people. They're just names on tombstones in the, in the cemetery. Um, these are important people to my life. They're the reason why I exist, and I don't know anything about them. And someday, Lord willing, I have great-great-great-great-grandchildren, and my name is just going to be a name on a tombstone to them. They're not going to know who I am. Um, we idolize people, and we don't really remember the people. We don't really remember who they were. Um, every, uh, it's, uh, this was the 10-year anniversary of the death of Steve Jobs. People talk about Steve Jobs like he was some saint or visionary when no one wants to remember the fact that he was a man who denied the paternity of his own child under oath so that he could avoid making child support payments. You know, we, We're selective about what we remember, and we are selective about what we want to be remembered for. Um, just imagine how he'll be remembered in a hundred years. He'll probably have religious icons made for him. Yeah, Larry. You know, um, there's, there's a second repetitive phrase that you have to look a little harder for Ecclesiastes. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that this too, or this is a gift of God. Mm-hmm. So buried within it, within the right context of understanding all good gifts come from God and enjoying them in the right perspective to our relationship with God, not supplanting them, mm-hmm. you know, they really are received as a gift. Mm-hmm. But you got you got to look harder for that because mostly it, it's under the sun, and it's only that less repetitive verse that pops up that, that brings some light to it. Because otherwise, I agree. When I first looked at that, this is a dark book, man. This is a downer, you know. <laughs> but there's a very Godward perspective in the book, but we we miss it. Um. Um. Here's what I have to just leave us with. This is not actually a blank, bleak, nihilistic book. It's sort of like you said, Larry. Um, what does Ecclesiastes 3.11 say? God has placed eternity into man's heart, yet so as he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So it's like God has filled us with this incredible divine sense, right? This Calvin called it the sensus divinitatis, this sense of the divine. God has filled us with it. And now we go around sort of trying to satisfy it. And none of the stuff under the sun actually does that. And so as long as we try to live lives under the sun, Ecclesiastes wants us to know we are going to keep wondering why we keep coming up empty. Um, Does anyone remember who came up with the God-shaped hole talk? 
Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal. Um, Blaise Pascal said that uh, man's biggest problem is he cannot sit in a room by himself. And that probably sums up the book of Ecclesiastes very well. Um, We want God, and yet we don't want God. We want God, we're repulsed by God. We want everything to be under the sun, but but under the sun just makes us miserable. And so this is us. This is us as human beings. Um, what What does Kohelet teach us then? He teaches us that there are joys in the simple things of life, that these joys are not bad, that these are temporary though. So we have to keep remembering how fleeting this is, how this could go away. Any moment now, this could be out of our hands. It could slip through our hands like sand, or it could get past us like smoke. Um, And so also that means don't make this stuff your identity. Don't even make your career your identity. Don't make your family your identity. Don't make any of this other stuff your identity. This is not who you are. This is not what you are about. God is your creator. And so if it can be lost, if it can be a vanity, then it's not who you are. Um, Ecclesiastes is a book concerned with what your identity is and where you find your joy. Sadly, I don't have time to say anything else, but it's a wonderful book. I'll talk more afterwards with anybody that wants to talk. But we, we're, at night, we're, we're five minutes late for Sunday school getting out, so we need to get the kids. So let me pray for us, and then I would love to stick around and talk. Um, Father in heaven, we pray that you would cause the message of both of these books today to resonate in our souls, Lord. Help us to remember that you created us as whole people that you created us, body and soul, that you did not just make us as people to walk around with functioning bodies where nothing that we do matters, but instead, Lord, you tell us that we are spiritual people, that we are people for whom the way that we live actually matters. Nothing that we do, Lord, if it's done for you, is a vanity. Mm -hmm. Help us to live for you, not for ourselves, Lord. We've seen those who've come before us, oh God, how they they tried to serve themselves, they tried to indulge themselves, and they found no joy, and it all ended up being a waste. So God, would you help us not to waste our lives? Yes. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.